Dan and Amanda, Joe, Bob and Ann. Hey, if you're like me, I can walk out the front door, turn down the sidewalk in either direction, or I can cross the street. And there's a handful of neighbors that I know by name. And if you live in a high-rise condo or an apartment complex, there may be a few people that you also can name in your building or at a favorite cafe on street level. But I can't say that I spend any time in the homes uh, or intentionally in the lives of my neighbors. The most that ever happens is curbside chats or uh, going over to help them with something or them coming over to help me, but uh, uh, it's, it's infrequent. In this quest conversation, we're looking at the letter Q, which stands for qualitative neighboring. Could I live on my street in a way that is set apart from the privatized isolation that we may be prone to? Could I live with my neighbors in a way that opens up the door to an incarnation of the presence of Jesus? There are pockets of Christians across Canadian cities that view life in the neighborhood as a sacred calling. And on today's episode, you're going to meet three people that I respect and admire for their commitment to live intentionally within their postal code. Karen Reed lives in Parker House, a beautiful house in the Commercial Drive District of East Vancouver. Bob Cameron lives on my street here in Windsor and is the founder and visionary of the Downtown Windsor Community Collaborative. And a returning podcast guest, Paula Castrucci, shares from her time of intentional community with Move In Toronto. And I'm Mr. Rogers. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Starting from west to east, let's meet our guests for today. Uh, Karen Reed is with us from Vancouver. So Karen, hello. Tell us briefly about Parker House and how long you've been on this journey of intentional community. Hello. Um... Well, it has been quite a journey in the last 10 years, 10 plus years that I have uh, intentionally moved into this neighborhood that uh, there's very little church presence. And so it was a sense of wanting to root into a neighborhood that had very little Christian witness. And I moved into a hundred year old house with six bedrooms and really wanted to, in my own journey, have a, an experience of a deeper experience of community and a more integrated faith. And really, I just uh, planted myself and spent a, a good amount of time just uh, seeking to listen to what God was up to and wanting to join him in that work. And so um, I began inviting people to, initially I made the house available for those that were kind of in need of short-term housing. And uh, so eventually there was a couple hundred people that stayed here. And that was really just a way for, um, I often joke that uh, God kind of needed to accelerate my learning process. And so that accelerated my process of learning to reorient my life around 
radical hospitality to the stranger. And so the idea was to just embed in to a, a neighborhood, to um, join in with what God is doing, and then to develop a, an intentional community that would embody the gospel together. So it's been a great ride. And uh, I had the, uh, unfortunately, only a one-time opportunity to visit Parker House. And uh, what, a, what a really beautiful uh, home and, and a beautiful spirit in your home. And uh, I just always love hearing what, what's happening uh, at Parker House, Karen. Mm -hmm. um, and I want you to meet a friend of mine on the call, uh, Bob Cameron. Uh, about 12, 13 years ago, uh, Bob and I began to have some conversations. Uh, we remember each other from uh, our uh, teens and 20s when uh, Bob used to work at his dad's Christian bookstore in Windsor. And uh, I used to go in there looking for Larry Norman albums. And uh, so that's when I first met Bob. And, and then, of course, lost track. And uh, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, he was pastoring uh, on staff at a church in the, in the uh, Toronto area. And uh, he uh, got a hold of me. And, and uh, we started to have conversations because he was sensing a call to do something uh, somewhat similar to what you're doing, Karen, uh, to move into downtown Windsor. And uh, so I'd like all our listeners uh, to meet Bob Cameron. Hello, Bob. And uh, tell us the uh, same kind of thing. Uh, how, how was God at work to, to uh, move you in this direction? And, and what is the Downtown Windsor Community Collaborative? Well done. You got it right. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> nice to meet you, too, as well. So 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, my wife and I and our four daughters moved home to Windsor after being away in the Toronto area for Mississauga for uh, 20 plus years. Um, the evolution of how we landed there included uh, the experience in Christian book selling and being exposed to uh, the broad Christian community, then working at uh, Charwell Baptist Church at the time in Mississauga and being community outreach pastor and spending a vast majority of my time mandated to be out in the community rather than within the four walls. And that was seven years of, of amazing experience of realizing uh, and testing how uh, the body of Christ lives and is outside of Sunday morning. Uh, then uh, just running into a whole bunch of people when coming home to visit here in Windsor who were doing some really neat things individually in the downtown core and these uh, factors all came together to sense uh, God's call to help uh, move home, uh, do incarnational life, uh, intentional living, as uh, Karen said earlier, and just coordinating people to do life together in the downtown to make a difference, in the sense of uh, participating with God is called into it in uh, transformation of our city, but most of all, to be a taste of the kingdom of heaven uh, by the body of Christ living and loving together. Bob, uh, I remain one of your biggest fans. Uh, you know, uh, I love uh, everything that you guys have been doing with the uh, DWCC and uh, just see how impactful it is on a local level. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the same could be said of uh, Parker House, that uh, these are the kind of ministries that uh, it's, it's not 
so much of having a, a big platform, it's actually having a front porch and uh, you know, being able to uh, love your neighbor and uh, such a key thing. Um, hey, one of our um, uh, previous guests on episode two of this year, uh, Paula Castrucci, uh, she talked about being single in the city. And uh, if, uh, if you haven't heard Paula's episode, I would encourage uh, all of you to go back and, and give a listen. Uh, to Paula as she talks about uh, being single in the city. And, and one of the things that I didn't get to attend her session um, because I was in another session at the conference that she was speaking at. Karen was there too. Were you at the Our City Conference 2019, Bob? Uh, or in, in Hamilton? I don't know. Think... No, Stone Church. Uh, no, you were at the one the year before, yeah, 2018. Yeah. Anyways. Um, anyways, back to it didn't ask me back. Well, <laughs> you mustn't have got the email. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, over. I'm gonna introduce, uh, reintroduce uh, Paula, and uh, I've just kind of gotten to know Paula peripherally around things like the Our City Conference and some of the downtown Toronto work uh, with with EJ and and different people and. And, uh, but um, you're such a likable person, Paula. And uh, part of your uh, journey um, uh, with intentional community um, was uh, with Move In. And uh, you just had kind of a brief season with that. We'll get into that a little bit later. But why don't you introduce yourself and uh, just tell us about your own sense of um, who are you called to? What what makes you tick? Uh, why do you remain in downtown Toronto? Absolutely. Doing what thank you do? Yeah, thanks a lot. Listen, uh, already established that I'm likable and I'm single. So that's, that's fun. But reality is with uh, singleness comes uh, a degree of loneliness um, that not a lot of people uh, do experience. And so I remember about six years ago living in my very own apartment. And while there are uh, really good things to that, I felt deeply lonely. Shortly after, uh, a lady that I had known for quite some time from the church had asked um, if I would move in with her. Her husband had just passed away. And so I, I obviously jumped at that chance because I was feeling lonely and I thought it would be beneficial for, for her and for myself. And so I moved into quite a big house in Brampton, Ontario. And with that came family for me. With that came an adopted aunt, an adopted grandma, and, uh, and her children who I'm close with, their friends, friends of mine, and also a lot of neighbors. We had good connections um, in that court. And we would sit in the backyard and people would just drop by and they would come in. And I felt I found it to be so incredibly uh, life-giving and so incredibly biblical. And so when the time came uh, in the summer of 2019, uh, the time came where my friend Sharon had decided to sell her house, I knew what that looked like for me is that I would have to uh, move as well. And so I looked into moving somewhere close to, to my office uh, so I didn't have a two and a half hour commute anymore. And uh, I, I feared that I would find myself in the same place that I was in six years ago, that I would have to move to Toronto and be alone. And that scared me. And so I heard of Move In, which is an organization that mobilizes Christians to move into neighborhoods uh, with the hopes of sharing the gospel 
which is what I believe we are to do as believers anyways, but what that provided for me was an instant community. And so in the summer of 2019, I moved in uh, to Flemington Park, which is near the Science Center, for all of you guys who love science, uh, in, in North York here. And I did so with the intent to not only share Christ again, which is what we should do, but to make sure that there were people in this neighborhood that didn't feel the loneliness that I'd felt uh, prior to moving in with, with the Robsons in Brampton. So I've been here for a year and a half now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's oddly starting to feel like home. That might sound weird, but it takes quite some time to get your footing and figure things out. So I'm at that place now where I'm I'm just really eager and anxious to, to build that community that I, I've longed for and that other people long for too. I think, uh, Paula, you, you talked um, about being single as, as a, a Christian, and, and I'd, I'd like to just kind of open the, the floor uh, discussion on this. Um, what, are, what are you learning about uh, singleness uh, in the Christian community? What have we done wrong when it comes to our understanding of sing singleness and uh, what what more can we do to um, uh, to strengthen our, our brothers and sisters who are single so um, Bob Karen Paula uh, jump on in put up your hand first so you don't interrupt each other Bob go ahead so I think we noticed that uh, numerically, a significant proportion of our community, both the loving community, the body of Christ, and the community at large, has a singleness too, especially in the downtown core. A uh, high proportion of uh, one person uh, family units. And uh, one of the uh, things in being a monastic or neo monastic community is one of the marks of it is providing a place for folks to enter into family or be family. And uh, God places the lonely in families, the Psalms, Proverbs say. And uh, uh, so being a welcoming space where folks are uh, valued for the gifts they bring rather than the relationship they are uh, uh, in is critical, but also providing an opportunity for folks to feel at home within other people's homes is, uh, is a sign and a taste of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, Karen, go ahead. Yeah, I think there's lots been written around um, how much uh, the idea of the nuclear family is a relatively new concept and um, how much if the, if the church has propagated that as the ideal that, that, that we have a very short history on that. Yeah. And um, so historically, you know, households of faith was, you know, a, a larger group of extended family and non-relatives that became this community together. So there wasn't the kind of identification uh, labeling that we have, I think, escalated with this kind of focus on, the, and maybe even idolatry of mm -hmm. the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's not so much a single issue, but trying to think um, for a larger, what does it mean that our primary identity is belonging together as, as the people of God? Yeah, so I would argue for more of an emphasis on that, uh, that um, more robust understanding that we, we don't just categorize people um, in those ways. And, and also structurally then, if our structure has primarily then accommodated 
uh, nuclear family units. And very few families kind of fit into that kind of narrow definition. Um, so I think all those things uh, together, uh, uh, like how we've structured around, how we've kind of uh, created biases around that, um, it makes it lonely not only for singles, but also um, couples that don't have children or blended families. There's a whole variety that it can actually kind of war against. Yeah, there's certainly a, a I mean, maybe the, the real epidemic that uh, has a bigger influence on our world right now is loneliness. Um, Paula, go ahead. Yeah, I just, I just think um, inclusion is important. Yeah. And, and community is important. Obviously, that's what we're talking about today. Whereas, like, I, I feel like we put people into categories in the church, right? So if you're single, you can go to your single small group. If you're married, there's the married small group. If you're married with young kids, you have the married young kids. And I don't think that's the way we need to operate. While I do think you can identify better with certain people, single people can understand elements of what I go through. Someone with a two-year-old can understand elements of what the other missus goes through as with a two-year-old. There's elements that you can understand in each other's lives, but the reality is we're supposed to function as a body. We're supposed to understand each other as a body. And that takes actually integrating, right? It takes, hey, this is just a small group in this location. If you live close to there, whether you're single, married, whatever, 50 years old, come over here. Like that, that's the reality. And and in understanding each other, we can we can better serve each other, right? And so as a single person, I can try to express to my friends or my church how lonely I feel and how COVID would uh, elevate that, right? And, and let them know how they can best serve me depending on their capacity and whatever. And I'm trying to understand my friends, even in this situation now, having to homeschool their kids. And when they come home from their full-time job, they have to cook for four. And they have to like, do they do the dishes for four. That multiplies everything, right? And so realizing that we can all actually serve each other, but with that, you, you actually have to do life together and you actually have to understand each other. And, and then we actually operate, um, operate like a body, right? So not segregating people based on their experience. There's times for that. That's why I have coffee with single people, right? So I can, this is so hard. I'm so lonely, right? Like that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, it's important to actually include and to, um, to, yeah, just to do life together from old to young to single to married, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Bob. Yeah, I was thinking the, um, the church predominant, it really has picked up and been shaped by the culture, which is now a highly individualized mobile community and uh, program driven, you know, technique. And what's happened is, uh, I think what Karen is, or really all three of us are doing is exploring alternatives, an alternate kingdom, which is driven by relationship, over programming, uh, parish driven in, in many, I guess in all three of them, which provides an alternative antidote to uh, an isolating community. Uh, so the idea of, of uh, what does life look like as body of Christ 20, like seven days a week, radically shifts the gifts and values that are attributed. So the gifts that people bring or their roles to run and manage a church and programming uh, it historically and traditionally has uh, uh, reduced the, the role of women and singleness. And, but when we move it back into the neighborhoods, uh, those diminish and we have opportunity for uh, playing with that and uh, seeing people's gifts and uh, capacity for relationships uh, uh, be nurtured and, and emphasized. 
Yeah, one thing I've also uh, pondered in the last couple of years is that there's two roles that haven't been professionalized. One is neighbor and one is homemaker. And uh, as I have wondered about the professionalizing of clergy and how that has influenced the shaping of the church, I've been curious about these two roles that seem now that I have entered into um, so that you're, so you're not carrying positional authority. It is primarily, um, you know, inviting people into your life as friends, like Jesus does, and um, valuing creating home and centering life around home, the, the sacred ordinary that uh, forces a more integrated, more holistic way of thinking about life. So um, I, I think many ways, some of these issues are symptomatic. They're kind of, they're, they're symptoms of larger, um, things that we have embraced and been formed by, like Bob indicated. I think about the story uh, Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. Uh, first of all, he tells this story in response to the question, uh, who is my neighbor? The, the law says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you know? so. The, the teaching moment, somebody says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And uh, as we get into the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, we begin to understand something about the true nature of hospitality. Hospitality is not just inviting uh, the stranger into my home but it's discovering my neighbor on the road and, uh, and, and being put into baffling situations where you can't quickly dismiss uh, what, what, what's going on, what, what needs to happen. And uh, so in the story of the Good Samaritan, there's this, this cultural barrier that needs to be crossed. Um, the Samaritan has this intimate concern for, for the man in trouble and, and a very generous hospitality that exceeds the normal limits of neighborliness. And how has your understanding changed over time of what it means to be a good neighbor? Mm -hmm. Especially if you've if you're now living it out in the context of intentional community, another uh, phrase I, I use sometimes, qualitative neighboring, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a quality neighbor? Uh, talk a little bit about how your understanding of neighborliness has, has changed over time. Yeah, I would jump in here and uh, there's been, a number of things that have kind of shifted for me. I think um, I could have allowed myself to be a little bit more selective about neighbor and I tended to think more distance. We tend to use that command to love God and love your neighbor as yourself as um, like love others, which of course we're called to do. But I think actually 
you know, in, in that time that it was written, you know, um, Jesus used the word neighbor. I think there was an emphasis on proximity and um, where we can kind of uh, get away with n not owning that. Right. Uh, often, if our lifestyles are so busy, we don't have time. Um, and so it, it, those become optional relationships that often have, there's no margin left for. And so it, it requires uh, a shift of our lifestyle in terms of having enough margin to see it as a priority that we would actually make space for you. It's those serendipitous moments where you're intentionally out on the porch or walking in a, a neighborhood often and bumping into each other and making space for that or in the garden or walking the dog. It's, it's those uh, moments that um, are the glue actually where you get to know people's names and you invite them into your home to share a meal. And so I started to wrestle with, you know, it's interesting that Jesus said that these are the most important commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. And uh, I think they're mutually dependent. We love God by loving our neighbor. We get to know and understand what God's up to by understanding what's happening in our neighborhood. Um, they're, they're mutually dependent. And I think uh, previously I, I separated them more. And so to really wrestle with that, that this was to take seriously how I, so that the irritating neighbor, uh, I couldn't just cut off, that, I, that everyone was welcome to the table, that I wasn't just um, seeking neighbors that I could serve or witness to or make a project, but inviting them into my life as friends. Yeah. And so that looks very different. Uh, it's a different posture. Um, it's, there's no uh, role. It's not like I am the leader or the pastor. I am simply um, here as a neighbor, as a friend and inviting people into my life. I might be a catalyst. I might be an initiator, a facilitator of space, but it takes a life of its own. Uh, and, and, that lovely little documentary called Godspeed about a priest trained in the US that moves into a small hamlet in England and had this conversion. And the idea that we move at the pace of being known. Send me and, that, is that on YouTube? Yes. Yeah, send me the link to that and I'll put it in the show notes so okay. people can go check that out. Lovely. And so this idea that we move so I didn't come and bring God into this neighborhood. I'm always reminded living in a hundred year old house that there's a lot of life here before I ever got here. I'm coming and participating what God has been doing ahead of me and, and joining in that. And so seeking to be a blessing to my neighbors, um, wanting to, to serve the common good, to participate uh, with anyone working for good in the neighborhood. So it, it's, it's um, I, I've, I think less compartmentized. Mm -hmm. I don't even think in terms of ministry anymore. This is, yeah. you're sharing life with people. Yeah. You sound a lot like my, uh, like your doppelganger, Bob Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that, um, 
I think it shifted his understanding of spiritual disciplines and spiritual maturity uh, shifts from an informational uh, capacity to uh, digest and, and give out Bible facts or doctrine to um, as a neighbor, um, sensing God's, God's movement in your neighbor and the call to participate at the appropriate time. So I do not force myself in. I do not advance the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is advancing the kingdom and invites or calls us to participate in it. Huge relief. So in relationships, it goes from being uh, manipulative and uh, agenda-driven, uh, saying, how am I going to bring this person to Jesus? And how am I going to manipulate the, the conversation at the dinner table to just sitting back and sensing the Spirit's movement in people's lives? And, and then how am I invited into it? And that requires a different kind of spiritual discipline, uh, spiritual practices than what we've historically trained people in. Uh, and, and Karen, I agree with you. Like uh, To love God and love neighbors are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate it. And uh, if I'm not loving my neighbor, I'm not loving God and vice versa. Yeah. So ironically, some of my neighbors are incredibly good at loving their neighbors. And there's divine things happening in them that they can't see yet. And yeah. uh, part of my call is to help them see their life through the lens of Jesus. Uh, and the aha moment goes on without them feeling I'm trying to you know, switch and bait them or manipulate them. Yeah. I would say in my neighborhood too, they would uh, chew you up and spit you out if they knew there was any hidden agenda, they'd see it. And so even the idea that we serve our neighbors, that's not language I use anymore. Um, this idea of agenda. I, one of the conversions I had was the idea that I would have intellectually um, affirmed theologically, but actually didn't live into it, that God is the primary agent of transformation. Uh, this is his deal, his kingdom coming. And, and the church is to be a, a witness, a, a sign, a foretaste. Um, but it's we're not the primary agents. We're not even co-agents. I think we're participating with God's agency. And that is a, a dramatically different posture. Uh, God is the agent. And, and it's, it's been liberating and freeing. Uh, to, to participate and see. I, I remember in the early months here, reflecting on the Gospels where Jesus ministered primarily in serendipitous moments and wondered, could I actually create a lifestyle in this time in history that, uh, that believed in that? You know, I'm old enough that I'm weary of the best that I can bring to the table in terms of my expertise and experience and education. I want that much more of the kingdom where Jesus... Um, the landlubber tells the professional fisherman where to fish. I think we settle for so much more when we just settle for our own little strategies and projects and services, where there is um, a participation. You know, it, it is that um, sense of it's not a passive posture. It's it's active and expectant, um, but there's not sense of a five-year game plan. There, that takes a life of its own. And you're uh, trusting that as you participate with what God's doing in bringing his kingdom to come on earth, that it's good. And uh, you're joining in that. Talk, talk to me ab about uh, the place that you're in. 
and we'll, we'll start with you, Karen, and then and then we'll go to Bob and then Paula. And and uh, uh, what I'm curious about is telling me about uh, the place you are, the the neighbors that you have. What's it like where you are? Uh, people will be listening to this podcast and. Uh, Many will not have visited any of these neighborhoods that you are in, others will, but uh, take me on a, a five senses tour of your neighborhood. Uh, so uh, we'll start with you, Karen, and then go to Bob and Paula. Mm -hmm. Great, so this neighborhood is called Grandview Woodland. It's uh, part of East Vancouver. Um, it's a pretty funky neighborhood. Uh, it's a lovely walking neighborhood. Uh, I can live 90% of my life within a 30 minute walk. I have everything that I need. I no longer have a car. I, uh, I have lots of bike routes uh, in the area, seven transit options. Um, I'm about 20 blocks from the downtown core. So um, it used to be Little Italy. Uh, so there's 15 coffee shops uh, within walking distance. We are the coffee snobs of the world. Probably, <laughs> actually, probably over 20 now and maybe 15 microbreweries. Um, it's also the highest concentration of artists in the country. Um, so uh, there's a high value of that. It's one of the most unchurched um, neighborhoods in North America. Cascadia, this would be kind of the epicenter of it in Canada, that Cascadia spirituality that's been written around, that has issues that's around um, different parts of the uh, North America, but they're intensified here. Um, so uh, many of my neighbors are very hostile to the church. Um, there's a strong um, opposition to Christianity. Uh, and lots of things um, that are contributing to that. About 35%, I would say, would be kind of over 50 uh, in age. A lot of uh, kind of intellectual hippies that moved here, a lot of uh, Americans that moved here during the Vietnam War. So they're very engaged. That group is very engaged politically, uh, strong activists. They have a lot of influence within the city. Um, very interesting neighbors. Um, really interesting major. So, uh, so there's a wide range uh, economically. You can have people living in $2 million houses uh, with someone that's kind of lower middle class in a basement suite. And you could have someone living below a poverty line in a garage uh, uh, in the back. So, uh, so there's a mix um, ethnically, uh, economically, um, and, and so part of my desire is to see urban uh, work beyond just that, uh, the marginalized neighborhoods. Um, so really good work that's being done in those neighborhoods, but the vast majority of the urban core are not in those marginalized neighborhoods. And so we've tended to often shrink uh, urban work to just marginalized neighborhoods. And I would argue to say more that we need a full breadth of uh, engagement and, and vibrant Christians that are embedded into every neighborhood in the city. What a, what a concept if uh, the body of Christ at large had more of a sense of place and intentional community. Wow. <laughs> so 
Yeah. So, Bob, um, I know your neighborhood. In fact, you and I live on the same street. Uh, we're about six blocks apart, I think. And uh, occasionally, I, if I get adventurous and walk my dog, I get to see you on your porch. <laughs> yes. But uh, tell, tell everybody about, uh, about the neighborhood that you are a part of and uh, the community. Sure. So our parish neighborhood is four square kilometers, uh, very defined geography, 16,000 people at the moment, probably living within the four square kilometers. Uh, I could walk it with my dog, the perimeter in about three hours. In that are a bunch of neighborhoods, uh, sub neighborhoods. So we divide uh, our parish into four quadrants and uh, uh, intention is to see, our vision is seeing a loving community within each one of those quadrants. But it's a diverse, Karen, same idea. We have uh, affluent professionals on one side and then slum, slum row housing on the other. Uh, uh, everything from uh, healthy people to folks who are wrestling with addictions and you know, dealing with the trauma, uh, painful trauma of their lives. Uh, uh, a strong proportion of new Canadians, new to Canada, uh, recent influx uh, uh, from Syria, but prior to that, a few years ago from uh, uh, Cambodia, Burma, and so our uh, local schools uh, reflect that diversity. Uh, every one of our neighborhoods has a school and a park in it, uh, which become the common space by which we meet uh, our neighbors in a space of uh, equality rather than a position of power, which even happens in my living room. The front porches are critical, they're walkable neighborhoods. Um, it's a business district, it's a commercial district, it's residential. And so the calling is to the parish. So it's not, as you said, Karen, uh, to a specific person. But really, I think the uh, acknowledging the diversity of the Trinity means that uh, we work for the diversity uh, and reconciling work of the diversity of our communities as a whole as represented in a loving community. Paula, um, you have... Uh... Uh, shared a, a sense of, you know, calling to uh, both um, uh, like young, young Christians and, and young people, uh, teens and young adults, uh, but also um, a deep sense of calling to, uh, to the street population, the, uh, the homeless uh, population. So talk to us a little bit about uh, where where you find yourself uh, building these relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Flemington Park specifically, it is, I would just mimic what uh, Karen and Bob said, it's a very diverse, big immigration population. A uh, lot of community housing, which obviously brings in some uh, drugs and gang related activity. Um, I remember waking up one Saturday morning to uh, a street out right outside my window, uh, lined with, with a SWAT team and big long guns and a drone driving over the building, flying over the building. Drones do not drive, okay? Flying <laughs> over the building and uh, cop cars everywhere. I mean, that's the situation that I live in, which is somewhat entertaining when no one is hurt, obviously. Um, so even, even when it comes to, uh, you know, poverty and homelessness and, and that kind of stuff, I have that right side of my door. How I go about that at this point, um, is really difficult, but as, as a profession, you're right, I do work for um, 
Youth Unlimited, Toronto's Youth for Christ, dealing predominantly uh, with teenagers, but also with the homeless population. And I, I know that we touched base on this earlier when we're talking about community is I actually have been going to the tent encampments uh, as of late um, and just building a relationship with the youth there. And I told my team last week, walking away from it, saying how jealous I was um, of the community that they have where they are taking care of each other. They're making sure that all the women have air horns and mace. There's actually a tent set up in that encampment that has socks and underwear and batteries and food and drinks and anything that is given to them is put inside of this one tent so that anybody in that tent encampment, and I would probably guarantee that anyone who came and needed something outside of that um, has everything that they need. They're sitting around in chairs talking and hanging out uh, they're caring for one another. I know that right before Christmas we had visited and there was a young gentleman there that was in a fentanyl withdrawal and uh, he was going through excruciating pain. I don't know if you know anything, anything know anything about withdrawal, but it, 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 it is said that when you're going through certain drug withdrawal that you would you want to like gnaw your arms and legs off. Like that's how painful it is. And this one gentleman was there and he had went to the bathroom in a sleeping bag and he was just in rough shape and so we were hanging out with him and, and whatnot and got him some clean stuff and and then uh the following week he actually he actually passed away and i just found that out last wednesday when i which was heartbreaking but to hear their community talk about him with such love and respect and to hear that while his 12 year old sister had come to collect the very few things that he owned that this community actually threw a memorial for him to the point where his family, this young man's family, was so touched and felt like his life was so honored. And I walk away from that and I just think like, we, we think we quote unquote serve people. And I just use that word. I know Karen, I hear what you're saying a few minutes ago, but we, we think that we serve people and we're bringing them love and we're bringing them practical things. And we are the ones that are reaching out. But the reality is that we are, are learning and being um, impacted by such a thing. And I think every time I, I hang out with people who would be thrown to the margins of society, the neighbors that maybe aren't so convenient, right? Or, or lovable or whatever the case may be, how society views them in actuality, um, it's, it's inspiring. And it's something that the church should be emulating then it sh they should be, you know? And so I, I try to, to live that out and try being the operative word, um, not just in my vocation, in my job, but in my own neighborhood. And uh, yeah, and just trying to be sensitive as I go about my life, just, just trying to realize, you know, that despite the cost at times that we are to love our neighbors. Some, sometimes I think that the people that I have learned the most from about how to how to love and how to uh, support and show hospitality uh, come from the people that are sometimes the poorest, that have the least, uh, that don't have uh, even a, a place to call their own, you know. But where they are and who they're with, they create that sense of community and, and love and and uh, yeah go ahead paula yeah there, there's a parallel just like we, we've drawn with single people to married people right where there's inclusion involved where i can actually bring something to the table as a body right 
And married people can bring something to the table. The same thing is, and that's what I teach my students, is that there's no downward relating with love. It's not, I'm loving the poor. Look at me, pat my back, take a picture with selfie. But the reality is, what can we learn from those who are struggling with poverty? Well, a ton, a ton. I can learn about, I can learn about community. I can learn about, about resilience. Like there's so many things, right? Where you, you, and I look at places like Regent Park too, where, and anywhere where it's being gentrified on a, on our, on a shallow level or whatever the case, I wouldn't even call it shallow, but on a, on a certain level, you look at it and you think that's damaging. And there are degrees of that. There are definitely degrees of that when you're throwing someone out to, to replace it. But on a spiritual level, how much can actually be obtained if we realize that there's no downward relating and that rich and the poor can actually have a very meaningful rhetorical, uh, not rhetorical, uh, reciprocal relationship. It's huge. We're going to break the conversation right there and be back on March 15th with the second part of my discussion with Karen, Bob, and Paula. If you want to know more about my friends on this episode, I'm including links in the show notes. Be sure to come back for the rest of this conversation. It gets even better. Well, that's all for now. I'm Kevin Rogers, and this is Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Keep one ear to the sky and one ear to the ground in your city.